0: This is the CMS Colloquium podcast for February 4, 2010. I'm Andrew Whitaker, communications manager for the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. This colloquium features Joel Burgess and Wayne Marshall, MIT's Mellon Fellows in the humanities, talking about old-fashioned futures and refashionable media, taking up the shared metaphor of fashion, the fashionable, the old-fashioned, the refashioned. You can find all of our podcasts in the iTunes store or on our website at cms.mit.edu.
1: I'd like to welcome everyone to the brand new digs here in the Media Lab building, E14. This is quite a room. Everybody looks very short in this room, uh, <laughs> so I, I don't know. I guess there's something going on there. I guess it's for the, the people of the future who will be taller than us, I guess, <laughs> you know. I think that's why we're looking ahead. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, this is the kickoff to the uh, Spring uh, 2010 CMS Colloquium Series, uh, which has got a, a wonderful lineup for the whole year. Uh, I'm really glad you can make uh, the time to be here. Uh, I'll introduce our speakers in just a moment, but I I do want to just point out uh, some ideas uh, we had for this semester, and looking forward as well, uh, that one of the things we want to do with uh, the colloquium series is to uh, bring in some MIT faculty, a variety of folks, a variety of voices, uh, to help us uh, keep uh, thinking about the future directions of CMS uh, at MIT. Uh, I think it's an exciting time uh, for CMS. Uh, I've uh, had the pleasure of being Associate Director now just for a few months, working with William. uh, And I am struck by uh, one thing, at least, that I just wanted to mention, uh, in in that as we're moving forward and thinking to the future of CMS, I've been hearing um, a lot of talk uh, periodically about how Uh, CMS has failed or CMS needs to change its way of doing things, that CMS needs to find new models. Um, And what I've been struck by, having just spent a little time and and trying to work uh, to help William and help all the other people and the graduate students who are all working hard uh, and faculty as well, working hard uh, to think about the future of CMS, that CMS hasn't failed by any means. uh, That In fact, CMS is a great success, uh, but it's a success that needs to be pushed forward uh, in some directions and that's going to mean Uh, I think more a broader involvement, uh, and that sort of behooves us uh, beyond uh, William and Henry who were such a driving force in the program uh, to work hard uh, to think of how we can participate and how we can do more. Uh, And we hope that this uh, colloquium series can be part of that, Uh, can be part of a place for us to discuss, uh, to debate uh, what media studies is. What media studies is is actually very much up for debate, it seems to me. Uh, and it's the kind of thing that can only be found and defined and evolved through uh, a kind of collective commitment to us arguing about it, engaging about it, thinking about uh, different directions it could go. Uh, and I hope that this colloquium series and other uh, events that we'll be having through the fall can help uh, do that. Um, so thank you for being here and thank you uh, for doing this. Uh, a thank you to William, <laughs> to all the hard work uh, through the years and continuing. Uh, it, it's really uh, an amazing amount of stuff that needs to get done. Uh, and it's uh, impressive, the directions and the ways that uh, CMS has come so far. Uh, I want to highlight a couple things that are happening in addition to the colloquium series you have. Uh, it's online, there are posters, uh, and you also have, uh, have will get email updates on the things that are happening with the colloquium and the Communications forum. Uh, they're happening at the same time throughout the semester. A lot of great things. I'm not going to list them all right now, uh, but I do want to point out that on March 11th, uh, Thursday, there will be a CMS town hall uh, where we can have a more open forum uh, for discussing uh, many things uh, related to CMS. And that also on April 23rd, that's a Friday, there will be an all day uh, ten, year, uh, 10 year anniversary celebration of comparative media studies. Uh, and so, uh, that's worth keeping in mind, as well. Uh, uh, with that, let me uh, turn to our speakers for today. Uh, we have uh, the, what we have are the two uh, MIT Mellon postdoctoral fellows who are here for two years. Uh, Joel Burgess is in literature. Uh, he is a uh, Ph.D. Uh, 2007 Ph.D. in English from Stanford. Uh, he's currently teaching a course uh, called Reading Fiction Fiction Across Media and Media Across Fiction, Uh, and he'll be talking from his work today. He's also working on a book manuscript uh, called The Uses of Obsolescence. Uh, I often feel obsolete myself, so I I would like to know what uses there are. Uh, uh, We also have Wayne Marshall, uh, who is another Mellon postdoc here for two years, is both in their first year of a two-year term. Uh, Wayne has a PhD in ethnomusicology, Uh, 2007 from University of Wisconsin. Uh, He too is teaching a course this term, uh, Music Industry and Digital Youth Culture. Uh, Very interesting and he's working on a book uh, that is titled Brave New World Music. Uh, He too will be talking uh, from his his research. I've asked the uh, speakers to take about 20, 25 minutes each and so we'll have enough time for a broader discussion. Uh, Please join me uh, in welcoming uh, today's speakers.
2: Uh, so, I'm going to go first. Uh, and I'm a bit of a virgin, or losing my virginity in three different ways today. Uh, this is the first time I'm speaking publicly at uh, MIT. Uh, it's actually the first time I've ever used a PowerPoint presentation of my own design in a talk of any kind. Um, uh, so, we'll see how that goes. It's one of the signs of my own obsolescence, I suppose. Um, and then, Oh, and then this work is very, very fresh work, it's some of the, basically the unresearched stuff that's not in the dissertation that I'm starting to think about at this moment. Uh, So those are my qualifiers. Um, So Wayne and I were asked to speak today about the rather daunting question of the future of comparative media studies at MIT. Uh, Together we decided to narrow that rather broad topic to an only somewhat less broader one, that to some degree connects our work through the metaphor of fashion, Um, so thus old-fashioned futures and refashionable media. Um, But it does seem to me that the daunting question of the future of CMS at MIT can be broken down into three major areas of inquiry, none of which are characterized by easily answerable questions. The first area is institutional, and I'll stay pretty far-field of that today. (laughs) Um, uh, What's the history of the program? Who are the faculty? Who are the students? What's the relationship of the program to other departments? What is the relationship to the administration? Uh, The second area is curricular and disciplinary. Uh, What traditions, problems, methods, histories, rubrics, and texts get taught? What counts as knowledge in a program and why? And how do those objects get framed and why? Uh, And the final is really a question of individual research. Um, How do individual researchers envision the future of media studies based on the areas of inquiry they themselves pursue? My comments today will center on really the second two areas. Um, As my current project uh, revolves around the uses of obsolescence in contemporary literature and cinema, I wanted to pose a curricular and disciplinary question out of some research I've just begun doing on Wes Anderson's uh, fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, The question basically is, uh, what if we made residual media the future of comparative media studies? Uh, What if we displaced new media as the discipline as the discipline's normative object of study and as its most common conceptual frame for a focus instead on old, aged, and decrepit media, not to mention practices in contemporary media that are willfully out of sync with the present moment. Uh, I was inspired to ask this question not only as a function of my own developing research around the fantastic Mr. Fox, but also as a result of some reading I've been doing since I arrived at MIT. In 2007, Charles Ackland published a useful collection that dovetails with my own current research. That collection was entitled Residual Media, and in in the introduction, Ackland argues, rightly, I think, uh, quote, the casual and profuse use of the term new media has left it vague and imprecise. At every turn, policy, budget, economic, pedagogic, we confront yet another triumphal proclamation of our freshly minted media trinkets. The mythologizing of new media would not be surprising, but for the fact that it also appears among scholars and agenda setters who, well, should know better. I don't know about that one. Um, If there is a reigning myth of media, it is that technological change necessarily involves the new and consists solely of rupture from the past. I think it's fair to say that Ackland is hitting the nail on the head here. While there might be some controversy involved in displacing new media as the central object and concept of media studies, it does feel like the overwhelming orientation of the discipline is towards the new, Um, and especially at times uh, where the new stands for the digital in its various techno-mediated forms. I'm not saying that's the only focus, I'm just saying that feels like the focus. Um, It's the way job descriptions are often written, it's the way programs sort of pitch themselves, it's often the curricular orientation too. Um, So how to correct for this tendency? Or rather, what might follow from displacing new media with residual media as the object and concept at the heart of media studies? Uh, My answer here is inspired by the work of David Bordwell, who I have also been regularly reading since I got here. Now, Bordwell himself is admittedly totally old-fashioned in his approach, um, but that old-fashionedness dovetails nicely, I have to admit, uh, with my proposal that we make the old-fashioned as such the central object and concept of media studies. More importantly, however, uh, Bordwell asked a potentially fruitful set of questions that could, in revised form, help to organize and structure how comparative media studies could proceed in redefining itself interrogatively as a discipline oriented on the residual instead of the new or to be a bit less polemical about it, oriented on both the residual and the new. Okay, so David Bordwell's questions emerge out of an approach that he calls historical poetics. This is an approach he advocates for film studies in both scholarship and in the classroom. So for example, in a recent blog entry, uh, new media, sorry, <laughs> Bordwell describes a seminar on film stylistics that he co-taught at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He and his co-instructor organized the course around, quote, studying style historically and conceptually. We focused on group styles rather than authorial ones because we wanted to explore particular concepts. So they pursued this exploration through the following questions. Um, How useful is the concept of group norms in understanding broad stylistic trends? Can we explain stylistic change through conceptions of progress towards some norm? Does the model of problem and solution help explain not only a particular innovation, but also a group's acceptance of it? How viable are notions of influence in explaining change? Uh, Can we think of filmmaking institutions as not only constraining style, but also enabling certain possibilities, nudging filmmakers in certain directions? And does stylistic study favor a comparative (laughs) method, one that encourages us us to range across major and minor films, as well as different countries and periods? Um, As these questions suggest, historical poetics focuses on pursuing inquiries about films as products of history where history stands for a set of trends, norms, and conventions that develop in and over time. As Bordwell puts it, historical poetics is, quote, the effort to understand how artworks assume certain forms within a period or across periods, including what caused certain changes and what counted as normative or conventional in a form or medium as history unfolded. Historical poetics is, in this sense, more descriptive and analytical than interpretive and hermeneutic and concerned with tendencies or effects rather than meanings. Um, this is Bordwell, in general, sort of hates what he calls Interpretation ink. Um, the kind of mu- the mixed muddle, according to him, of close readings and theoretical applications. Um, and he's, this is really part of the charge for him of turning histori- to historical poetics. It's not the charge for me today. Um, I want to pause for a moment for that reason. For at least based on the questions that Bordwell said were central to the seminar he taught, historical poetics seems to rely on a model of historical development in which progress takes place. Uh, This is most explicit, just to go back for a second, uh, in the question in which Boardwell talks about group norms uh, or conceptions of progress towards some norm. Um, But across these questions, I get the sense that cinematic change over time means moving progressively towards a set of norms that both constrain and enable through institutions and traditions. Uh, now, I want to be clear, I'm not actually going for or building up to some sort of catching out of Boardwell in some unwittingly uh, positivist teleology or ideology in what history in in which history only progresses forward. That's not my point. Uh, instead, I found this relatively unmarked focus, let's just call it, on progress in the questions interesting, precisely because the answers he said he discovered to those questions in the course he was teaching um, focused on, Uh, a device that long ago lost its normative status. So instead of being interested in uh, something that it was progressing towards, he ended up talking about things that had vanished. Um, In other words, like a device that was at worst obsolete and at best residual. And I got ahead of myself before. Uh, That advice was was the axial cut in film. Um, it's actually worth describing Boardwell's account of this cut because it suggests one line of thinking that might productively emerge out of making residual media and old-fashioned practices within media, both the object of study and the conceptual frame of media studies as a discipline and perhaps as a program at MIT. In fact, Boardwell's account can ultimately help us see what lines of inquiry and types of questions could follow in terms of scholarship and curriculum out of such a shift away from the new and towards the old. So an axial cut is a cut that shifts the framing straight along the lens axis. Um, Usually the cut carries us straight in from a long shot to a closer view, but it can also cut back. Essentially, this cut means that a camera has zoomed in or dollied in, um, and then that some of that footage has been cut out for the final edit. Um, So you can see that here, right? So these are a sequence of shots, and rather than slowly zooming in, you're getting more rapid cuts. Um, There's footage that's been removed. Um, right, so basically what this does is create visual emphasis and visual stress. An axial cut percussively and rapidly focuses our attention on some object or person or detail in a way that a straight zoom or dolly would do far more smoothly. Just to give you a sense, um, this is an image of that, and this is from Alexander Dovzhenko's 1929 film Arsenal. Uh, and Bordwell says that this film is characterized by a string of very fast enlargements, and you can see that here created by the axial cut, which engenders a percussive accent in the editing. Now, Bordwell is very interested in this stylistic effect, um, the expressive possibility that he calls a percussive accent. Um, But for my purposes today, what's interesting is how he notes that in the heyday of the axial cut as a trend, especially, or then he notes that the heyday of the axial cut as a trend, especially in Hollywood, um, was in the 1910s and 1920s. Historically, the axial cut fell out of fashion after the 20s, especially as the more complex forms of editing were emerging to produce a strong sense of narrative causality and visual continuity, um, particularly in Hollywood. Thus, after the 20s, the axial cut, in effect, became an obsolete technique. Not in the sense of being useless or defunct, but in the sense of being abandoned in favor of more developed forms of editing, uh, more in line with emerging contemporary norms that we now call classical. And while the Axial Cut appears now from time to time in contemporary cinema and television, Bordwell provides a great example from The Simpsons, actually. Um, it can be thought of as both subordinate and outmoded, in short, a device that has lost its once normative status. The subordinate outmodedness of the Axial Cut is significant for a couple of reasons. Bordwell's account of it suggests what might happen to media studies once we render new media obsolete or, to put the matter less cutely, once we make residual media and outmoded media practices the center of our attention. In Bordwell's case, we get an interesting history of what has been left behind stylistically and technically in the medium of film, of norms that did not take hold. In other cases, we might get histories of abandoned media, or of the continued uses of obsolete media in the present, or bygone practices associated with media that we now utilize quite differently. The second and integrally related reason Bordwell's example of the axial cut is significant for me is for the way in which it suggests how we might revise the temporal orientation of Bordwell's historical poetics to organize inquiry around residual media. In other words, what I want to propose is that in envisioning an old-fashioned future for comparative media studies, questions in historical poetics, such as the following, assume a central role. What happens when a film regresses from norms, adopting an outmoded style, Uh, or outdated medium, one that has been rendered obsolete by both technology and trends? Can we explain stylistic change through conceptions of obsolescence that focus on residual media, obsolete aesthetics, and primitive devices? How viable are notions of obsolescence in explaining change over time and or modes of practice in contemporary media? Is a regression from norms to be grasped solely as a case of individual innovation, or should it be seen as an instance of uneven development within the wider window of stylistic change as Fordwell would have it or as we might have it within a contemporary media formation? Can obsolescence help us grasp the effects of or even interpret a particular film or mode of film practice or a particular medium or mode of media practice? Does a focus on regression from norms and obsolescence encourage the comparative method that's in the title of this program, one that favors ranging across periods and thinking of the contemporary as existing in history? So, as a way of closing, I'd like to put these questions in motion by briefly looking at Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, Wes Anderson's film adapts Roald Dahl's children's novel of the same (coughs) name into an animated film. One that seems to be regressing from the trend towards digital animation, and indeed, digitized cinema more broadly. Uh, I'll pause with a caveat there. Um, I'm not sure we can call the digital a norm yet. Um, because it's certainly true that many films are just still being filmed the way they historically have been for decades. Um, But it does feel to me like we're trending towards imagining that, at least, as the norm of the future, or establishing that as the norm towards which we're moving. Um, Anderson regresses to a residual meeting and an old-fashioned technique. Handmade figures uh, and stop-action animation, as you can sort of see here. Uh, This was actually a painstaking process, requiring 125,000 shots, and one day garnered only 30 seconds of the final film itself. Uh, in order to give you a sense of what this wonderful film looks like, here's a clip uh, uh, Not letting me do it..
3: Here we go. I understand what you're saying and your comments are valuable. But I'm gonna ignore your advice. The cuss you are? The cuss am I? Are you cussing with me? No, you cussing with me. Don't cuss and point me You're gonna you cuss with, with someone, you're not gonna cuss, with, gonna, me. You're gonna you're
4: gonna cuss, cuss. with me, you little cuss.
3: Just by the tree. Okay.
2: And there's actually a couple of cuss.
3: Who am I, Kylie? Who? How? What now? Why a fox? Why not a, a horse or a beetle or a bald eagle? I'm saying this more as, like, existentialism, you know? Who am I? And how can a fox ever be happy without a, uh, you'll forgive the expression, a chicken in its teeth?
0: I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds illegal.
5: Here, put this banded hat on.
4: Maybe you're a medium. Take it off for a minute. And don't wait around the house. Basically, there's three grabbers, three taggers, five twig runners, and the player at whackbat. The center tagger lights a pinecone, chucks over the basket, and the whack batter tries to hit the cedar stick off the cross rock. Then the twig runners dash back and forth until the pinecone burns out and the umpire calls hotbox. Finally, at the end, you count up however many spore downs it adds up to and divide that by nine. Got it. Going for Ash. Substitution! Ash! Come out! You need a breather! What?
6: what? Come out? What? I still feel good, coach. Let me finish this
4: eighth. No, no. Come on.
3: Step out. Step out. Let's go.
0: Am I getting better, coach? Well,
3: you're sure as cuss not getting any worse.
0: Really? I mean, you think I could end up being as good as my dad if I keep practicing?
3: Your dad? Your dad was probably the best
4: whack-bat player we ever had in this school.
3: No, you don't want to have to compare yourself to that. No, but I think I have some of the same raw, natural talent, don't you? You're improving. Let's put it like that.
2: So Anderson's film raises a number of questions, at least three of which we can adapt from the historical poetics of obsolescence that I laid out as the old-fashioned future of media studies. Uh, One, can obsolescence help us grasp the effects of Fantastic Mr. Fox? Uh, Put differently, what effects are created by the turn to a residual medium of animation in Anderson's film? Two, is Anderson's regression from contemporary norms and trends, especially the trend towards the digital, to be grasped solely as a case of individual innovation? or should it be seen as an instance of uneven development within the contemporary media formation in which cinema currently finds itself? Does a focus on Fantastic Mr. Fox's temporal regression from norms encourage a comparative method, one that provokes us to range across periods or think of the contemporary as existing in history? Without sounding too tautological, I think one of the effects of this old-fashioned medium for animation is to endow the film with a feeling of old-fashionedness. Uh, This is less obvious statement than it sounds, actually. Um, After all, if we were to witness an axial cut now in a film, we wouldn't necessarily experience it as old-fashioned. We would just experience it as unfamiliar, I think. Um, Because there still are axial cuts at times in order to create sort of punctuation and stress in films. I don't think we would have a sense of temporal um, out of sortness as a result of the appearance of an axial cut. But whereas the stop-action animation here really does endow the film with a kind of aura of obsolescence. Um, So the the kind of gesture backwards to a more primitive device or a more primitive medium for um, animation actually does sort of end up endowing it with obsolescence. Um, And the aura is actually intensified by the tableau compositions, at least for me, uh, and the lateral horizontal camera movement. So you don't get a lot of feeling of moving in depth as if you're moving into the screens towards the horizon. You get a lot of feeling of moving across and up and down, um, as if the image is flat. And this seems to me indicative of early cinema, but hardly conventional now. Uh, I think both of these are part of a deeper effect, an attempt to have the spectator take a certain pleasure in animation, and perhaps cinema more generally, where animation and cinema are defined as a medium that puts objects into motion. The effect here is something like wonder at the ability of those 125,000 shots to engender a sense of motion from inanimate figures, a sense of wonder that arguably hinges on the turn to the residual medium itself. Uh, A friend of mine described himself in watching this film as uh, finding himself distracted by the motion of the fur and not being able to pay attention to the expression on the faces. And I think that actually is sort of one of the effects that's sought after here, is a a sense that media makes things, or that film makes things move. Um, So in answer to the second question, is this individual innovation or uneven development? I do think that the peculiarly old fashioned regression from the norm here does at some level feel like a specifically individual innovation. Um, We might put it this way. The stop-action animation constitutes something like a temporal means of setting Wes Anderson off from the post-cinematic drive towards the digital as both a director, he is the anti-James Cameron, um, and his film is the anti-avatar in many ways, um, and setting himself off as an animator. He is kind of the anti-Pixar here as well. Stop-action animation, in other words, becomes the residual medium with which Wes Anderson signs his signature to this film. Indeed, one could say that signing his signature is not entirely figurative on my part, since stop-action animation requires constant and minute manual manipulation of handmade figures. In other words, Fantastic Mr. Fox is handmade in a way that Avatar, Up, and WALL-E simply are not. Um, Though this glosses over the intense amount of labor that go into digital rendering, Um, For every second of Avatar, uh, they did 2,400 hours of work. So we're talking about actually probably more levels of on-hands labor for Avatar, which I actually think is interesting in this mix of things. Um, The perspective that Fantastic Mr. Fox is primarily an instance of individual innovation would arguably combat against thinking of the use of a residual medium in the film as an instance of the uneven development of the contemporary media formation in which uh, Anderson's film sits. However, just because Anderson probably sees the choice of a residual medium as a means of asserting his individuality as a filmmaker um, in a kind of the form of a contemporary auteur, right? It does not necessarily follow that his individual choice does not have some implications for the temporal texture of contemporary media more generally. In fact, I think it's important to point out here that a number of more auteurist and art house films over the past few years, Michael Gondry's The Science of Sleep, uh, I'm going to get this name wrong, Nicholas Jasenovich's Paper Heart, um, and we might lump in Spike Jones's Where the Wild Things Are Here, um, have turned to the handmade, sometimes in the context of the digital and sometimes not. This tells us two things, that a certain brand of filmmaker, to greater and lesser degrees at some distance from mainstream filmmaking of the Hollywood brand, is making the residual meaning of handmade and stop-action animation into a seemingly unconventional convention, right? Like, it's sort of popping up as a convention in all this mode of film practice, almost as a way of distancing yourself from Hollywood itself. Um, And this points, I think, to an unevenly developed cinematic field in our contemporary media formation, Uh, one that deserves more sustained attention in media studies than it currently gets. Um, And this leads to the final question I asked. Does a focus on Fantastic Mr. Fox's temporal regression from norms encourage a comparative method, one that provokes us to range across periods or think of the contemporary as existing in history? The answer here is yes. In order to grasp the film as regressing from norms, we need in the first place to have compared it to what is normative already, or norms that seem to be emerging, But what is most powerful for me is how such comparative method opens up not just the contemporary media formation as one that is unevenly developed, but situates the contemporary as itself a historical phenomenon that a term such as a new cannot possibly sufficiently cover. Indeed, in the end, what I may be calling for here is most simply more historical perspective in media studies. Perspective that not just opens up onto the past, but perspective that historicizes the present as itself always already old.
0: Thank
7: you. Huh? Pardon us one second while we shuffle around here um. and uh. We'll get up to speed in a second. So Joel's suggestion that the study of residual media represents a fruitful, if not imperative, direction for the future of comparative media studies is one I can endorse. um, But it's also one, thank you, that's a little tricky for me, at least with regard to my current research project, uh, to embrace, or in a a sense almost to wrap my mind around, um, uh, with regard to, to the kind of media that I'm looking at, especially today's... Uh, so-called social media platforms, okay, um, uh, with which I've been increasingly engaged, uh, and how these platforms, at times so brimming with media production, circulation, and discourse more generally, sometimes leave very little residue behind. Vanishing into the black holes of corporate acquisitions and URL redirects, such media may never get the chance to become residual. To put it slightly differently, how do we envision the future of media studies, never mind the future of media, when the shift to corporate-run online media ecologies, which as I'll argue today, appear deeply fragile despite certain forms of permanence. We hear a lot about how incriminating photos on Facebook will haunt you the rest of your life. Uh, When this shift in the spheres of media production and exchange not only goes digital, but but goes private. As public culture, media culture, drifts into the corporate ghettos of Web 2.0, uh, uh, platforms, we're left with the distinct possibility of no res- no residue, no residual media to remind us of our pasts and of the possible futures that stem from them. Increasingly dominant sites like Facebook, YouTube, or MySpace benefit from a certain fashionableness, an allure of cool produced by the vibrant participation especially of young people and of the, uh, the appeal of critical mass, uh, sometimes tilting into a kind of social obligation, Uh, again another sort of uh, bad Facebook story that goes around these days is how college students can't have a social life without being on it, Uh, that that not being on Facebook amounts to a certain social invisibility and ostracization. This fashionableness has succeeded in drawing so much of today's media practice into what are essentially privatized realms. For all their fashionableness then, the fashionability or refashionability of these sites is really rather negligible. This might seem unsurprising. Uh, But the paradox here, of course, is that the users generating the so-called content of Web 2.0 should have a lot more power than they do to contribute not simply to the wealth of media that animates the activity on these sites, but to the architectures and terms of service that often constrain that same activity. This combination of fashionableness and unfashionability leads to a rather fraught and sometimes fragile state of affairs. Uh, What we're looking at here is just a collection of um, logos uh, related to music... uh, music-oriented, so-called Web 2.0 sites. Um, and I, I always like looking at these things just because of the way that you get the sort of general zeitgeist aesthetic of, of how they're, they're, they're pitching themselves. Um, As I'm currently asking in my class and in my research project, do the values and practices of these so-called users shape the spaces they inhabit, or to what extent do these spaces and their coded and legal architectures uh, shape our own values and practices? Are these companies driving, or are they reacting to changes uh, in social and cultural norms? And These are questions that get asked all the time. Again, we can think about Facebook and privacy. People are often wondering whether... The latest uh, terms of service uh, announcement from Facebook is reacting to user practices, or is or is actually shaping them, um, or or said something like fair use and YouTube, uh, which again raises the same questions. Um, even more recently, the the announcement of Apple's iPad uh, and the kinds of concerns that raises about to what extent it will it will shape future um, um, you know media practice, uh, whether it's a closed platform um, or or a generative platform, and so forth. Um, So how refashionable are these sites when they're beholden not merely to their their users who, of course, bring them their value, but also to their so-called partners, the advertisers and established brands or media firms or, quote-unquote, professional content producers that want to get in on the supposedly democratized action? Tarleton Gillespie uh, has written recently uh, about what he calls the politics of platform. Um, And He calls YouTube and other online, massively socially networked cultural intermediaries, quote, the primary keepers of the cultural discussion as it moves to the Internet. As such, he continues, like the television networks and trade publishers before them, they're increasingly facing questions regarding their responsibilities. To their users, to key constituencies who depend on the public discourses they host, and to broader notions of the public interest. Specific disputes, particularly around intellectual property and privacy, have spurred bursts of rulemaking that are beginning to establish protections and obligations for these content intermediaries. In the context of these financial, cultural, and regulatory demands, these firms are working not just politically, but also discursively to frame their services and technologies. And here is where he comes to the the use of this term platform, which, uh, as he sees it, helps reveal how YouTube and others stage themselves for these constituencies, allowing them to make broadly progressive sales pitches while also eliding the tensions inherent in their service between user-generated and commercially produced content, cultivating community and serving up advertising, uh, between intervening in the delivery of content and remaining neutral. Uh, And uh, Gillespie contends that platform is a claim that arguably misrepresents the way YouTube and other intermediaries really shape public discourse online. Uh, platform, as he goes into it, has a few different connotations. It can refer to a kind of con- you know, computational platform, something to build on. It can refer to a political platform, a place from which to speak and be heard. Uh, it has a figurative meaning uh, in that um, there's uh, the opportunity is an abstract promise as much as a practical one, and it has an architectural sense uh, in the case of YouTube that it's designed as an open-armed, egalitarian facilitation of expression, not an elitist gatekeeper with normative and technical restrictions. Um, and uh, as far as he sees it, that latter you know meaning, which seems to circulate fairly widely, dovetails quite nicely with a lot of the enthusiasm for um, as he puts it user generated content, amateur expertise, popular creativity, peer level social networking, and robust online commentary uh, a lot of things that that I and, and colleagues here um, have been excited about for a little while. Um, Gillespie concludes that despite the promises made, platforms are more like traditional media than they care to admit. And as with broadcasting and publishing, their choices about what can appear, how it's organized, how it's monetized, and what can be removed and why um, are all real and substantive interventions into the contours of public discourse. So I guess this is why we should be concerned. Um, in addition to the other discursive tricks that platform perform, performs, that also implies. Uh, and this is me now, uh, a false sense of stability. Uh, Let me take some time to offer a case where that assumed stability has proven kind of disastrous, not only for the users who uh, who contributed so much to this particular platform, but to us as media scholars seeking to make historical sense of media practice. A platform's a nice thing to stand on and project one's voice, even if we understand the term in the figurative and maybe problematic sense that widely obtains today, but a platform can also apparently be pulled out right from under you. And the platform I'm talking about, in this case, is iMeme. How many people are familiar with iMeme? One, two, three, Not okay. a handful. Um, Well, if you weren't now, um, aside from today's talk, you probably won't hear about it again, um, (laughs) because it no longer exists. Uh, Last month, uh, well, actually in December, MySpace um, acquired iMeme. Um, It was kind of a fire sale. In fact, it it reportedly went for under $1 million, uh, which is really cheap as far as successful social networks go. You might recall that MySpace itself was bought by News Corp for $580 million back in 2006 and that YouTube was purchased by Google for, uh, what was it, $1.6 billion uh, also in 2006. And, you know, those are much larger than iMeme. But, but iMeme has, uh, at the time of its closing, 16 million users and really had become the uh, the premier, at least in the United States, streaming audio service. You can think of it as a YouTube for audio. It was, uh, you know, it was the first um, site that allowed um, people not only to upload audio, but then to embed, you know, little flash widgets that would play that audio on their MySpace page, on their blog, what have you. And uh, as such, it took off right away. It gathered uh, some, the the force of several different, uh, or lots of different communities. Uh, and individuals networking on there. Um, and in fact, uh, they quite successfully um, leveraged their popularity to uh, notably make licensing deals with all four of the major music labels. And so uh, they were able to, in that way, um, avert the kinds of, uh, of sort of uh, legal threats that have uh, been, you know, dogging YouTube and, and other sites that allow users to upload content. This is a, an example of one of the few screenshots that I could find. Uh, I mean, this is an example, that, uh, iMeme is an example of uh, a sort of non residual media um, that isn't one I just pick out of the air. It's one that, that unfortunately is proving um, uh, more and more a sad story for my own research project because uh, despite going there for years now and, and, and looking at the activity and um, and, and trying to make sense of it, it's gone, and I, I myself have to admit I didn't, I didn't really document it as well as I should have. Uh, if you go and do you know image searches for uh, iMeme screenshots, you can find things like this. This shows you um, uh, one example of how certain people used it. And here it's hosting a commercially released uh, record, and you can see it has the, the typical web 2.0 sort of uh, buttons at the bottom ways that make it easy to to, to share something, to favorite it. Uh, to, to, to embed it on other sites uh, and so forth, to customize it. Um, it's, it's definitely uh, got a lot of new media features in that way. Would you? Thank you. Um, so it, it, was, it was fairly popular, uh, and yet despite its successes, it apparently couldn't monetize all of that activity. I mean, this is, this is not unusual for these kinds of sites. YouTube still hasn't turned a profit. Um, and uh and and so the uh, the owners of of of, of I mean eventually couldn't pay their bills anymore they couldn't actually Pay the licensing fees to the major labels for all the amount of uh, of listens uh, that that their music was getting. Um, they uh, actually, what, what reportedly broke the bank was an independent label suing them for supposedly unauthorized uploads uh, and, and asking for the full hundred and fifty thousand statutory you know, limit for each song, um, and that, that sort of broke the bank. So so I mean, purchased it. I mean, I'm sorry, MySpace purchased uh, purchased it in, in December. Um, still, as a rather active property, they purchased it with those 16 million users uh, as part of the, the bounty, but also with the, the talent uh, of iMeme itself, in a hope, among other things, to, to regain some traction on Facebook, which overtook MySpace in, in 2008 as the most commonly accessed uh, social networking site. Um, so, what happened to iMeme after that? Well, um, <laughs> for one thing, all of those embeddable widgets all over the web, um, for a while, were totally invisible, and now have been replaced by um, bright orange advertisements for uh, ringtones uh, from the major record companies, and also direct links um, to MySpace music. Um, MySpace offered to uh, migrate or um, uh, let me or transition people's playlists from iMeme to MySpace. The idea was that they're, they're going to maintain this this vibrant, you know, sort of networked music community and, um, and, and, and bring it over to MySpace where they can monetize it, hopefully more effectively. Um, as far as I can tell, um, plenty of iMeme users have done that. Some of those I've asked, though, uh, many of whom notably have declined their offer. I mean, they've just gone and, and done something else. They've, they've counted uh, that it's not recoverable. Um, those who have tried to transition, one interesting thing is that only the commercially available recordings, so the ones that MySpace already has uh, licensing with, uh, uh, with the major labels, are the ones that have appeared. Um, so uh, any content that was uploaded, any songs that were uploaded um, that were self-produced or were independently produced uh, are gone. But not just the songs. Uh, their, also their curation, their situation in this kind of network, right? So we miss all of the all of the, the the people gathered around these songs. We miss all of the discussion gathered around these songs. There were what you could do uh, is you know uh, below these playlists, you would there would be a comment thread, and you know there was often commentary going on. What was interesting to me when I stumbled across the site was how much um, commentary was happening among very local. Uh, music subcultures. I first learned about it when I was in Chicago, and I got very interested in, in, in a, a, a local uh, dance and, um, and music scene there called Juke. Uh, and it was remarkable to me how many sort of teenage juke producers had had their, their, you know, their entire oovers up with playlists, how many of their friends were commenting and, and, and encouraging them, um, and how they were then embedding these playlists very savvily into their MySpace pages and, and, and using them to link to their YouTube pages, and, and, and generally using these tools in some, some very uh, effective ways, um, although notably to engage mainly with what seemed like their local peer group. Um, so that was one interesting thing. And yet at the same time, it was you know, sort of globally available, so, so people like me and other people who, who were drawn to it more from, say, a, a, an affinity standpoint than, um, than a, a friendship standpoint also could, could find their way there. Um, these things are gone. I'm not saying that those networks are gone. They've moved elsewhere. They're still on MySpace. They're still on, on, on YouTube and, and so forth. But um, this moment, from say 2005 to 2008, when I mean was such a thriving place for all these places, is is kind of unrecoverable. We, I can't reconstitute that that media ecology. Um, as far as I know, nobody has saved it in any kind of significant way. Um, and so it's um, it's kind of sad to me. Uh, let me just show you to to show you another example. Um, I've been you know bookmarking things that I found there for some time. This guy DJ Nate was. Uh, 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 Somebody who I, I really enjoyed his productions. He had his whole site here. You see, D- DJ Lil Red at imeme.com. Now, if we click on it, it looks like it's going to bring us to my—I Sp- mean, i-meme, and then we say uh, we get to MySpace, and they're selling us Dave Matthews. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it gives us the opportunity to import iMeme playlists, but you're not—I don't—I don't think that DJ Nate's music is going to carry over there. Um, uh, and you know, the blog posts that I wrote about this about this activity. Um, you know, are now big advertisements. <laughs> so, you know that. Uh, yeah, I I don't I don't mean to just make this a sob story, but it, it's kind of sad for me. I've I've lost a lot of uh, uh, a lot of research opportunities that I, I had taken for granted, and that's part of what I'm what I'm trying to speak to here. Um, right. So, a very brief m- mention of a sort of p- parallel uh, story. Uh, those of you who saw my my, my talk uh, last fall about uh, floggers and their embrace of photolog, uh, and in particular the way that this this photo-based um, social networking site had had seemed to facilitate uh, a particular a particularly interesting mix of, of visual and, and musical style. Um, there's been reports recently that, that um, well, as you can see here, <laughs> PhotoLog has been on the decline in Argentina. Uh, in fact, if, if, you, you, if you look right here, it's actually now ranked 12. Um, the oops. When I, uh, when I reported about this in the fall, the sources that I had seen, which were maybe a year old at the time, were, were saying that uh, PhotoLog was in fact the number two most accessed website in Argentina. Um, now the number two most accessed website in Argentina is Facebook. Um, and Facebook, uh, as far as I can tell so far, it's just, I mean, it doesn't do the same thing that Photolog does. Uh, and, and in a way, um, uh, this is another example of, of how fragile sometimes these media ecologies can be. Uh, one sociologist in Argentina who works on floggers, um, uh, although I don't know what the evidence is for this, really seems to think that, that uh, the, the, day, the days of floggers are gone uh, and that, that that's largely a result of... Um, Facebook's rise in popularity, and and so there are ways in which the the very architectures of these things can can, uh, have have real effects on what gets produced. Um, So the ephemerality to which the disappearance of iMeme or the waning of photolog and floggers bears witness offers something of a counterweight uh, to the creeping anxieties about the perilous permanence of the trails we leave online. Um, This is especially worrisome, though, for scholars of media, never mind for activists or advocates who seek to strengthen media democracy, horizontal communication structures, and peer-to-peer culture. And so I want to sort of conclude by talking about some implications for scholarship and for comparative music... uh, uh, Media studies. Sorry. (laughs) A little slip of the tongue there. Um, uh, So uh, one thing, and this is a bit of a banal recommendation perhaps, but I think there's an archival... Imperative, uh, for one. I wish that I had paid more attention to that and at least made some rich screen grabs, maybe some videos of going through playlists and so forth, some way of trying to think about, how, well, how do we archive uh, one of these living, breathing, but privatized uh, structures? Um, this isn't just about you know, grabbing copies of the songs and the videos and the texts that are up there. This is somehow uh, a, a need to preserve the, the ecologies themselves, even if they're dead and abandoned. Um, it feels like quite a loss not to have access to uh you know not the not the media themselves even but 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 all the all the connections around them um, and, and so forth um, The second thing of course is uh, is a sort of maybe the traditional focus of comparative media studies which which has to do with teaching critical media literacies, and that's not just how to read per se, although that's still important, read media per se, but but also following some recent comments by um, the ever-provocative Clay Shirky, thinking about um, how the new literacy might be publishing. Um, uh, Shirky writes, in the 20th century, the mere fact of owning the apparatus to make something public, whether a printing press or a TV tower, made you a person of considerable importance. Today, though, publishing in its sense of making things public is becoming similarly deprofessionalized. YouTube is now in the position of having to stop eight-year-olds from becoming global publishers of video. The (laughs) The mere fact of being able to publish to a global audience is the new literacy, he says. Um, So teaching how to publish, which is to say in the world of public culture on social networking sites of mass self-publishing and the ambient intimacy of tweets, status updates, shared and self-produced music and video and photography and text, how to understand one's predicament, one's rights and abilities and responsibilities. If following uh, Manuel Castells, we've moved into a moment where the communication space is really paramount for public discourse, where institutional hierarchies have lost their power over cultural and political discourse, uh, we need to realize. Uh, people need to realize. Students uh, need to be taught that they have a certain power, especially collectively, and that they need not give so much away. Um, this isn't just about producing more savvy readers of terms of service agreements. This is a problem of collective action for the public domain, the public sphere, and public culture. Uh, I mean, at what point? Uh, in the, you know this is this is said half heartedly but not half heartedly half jokingly um, at what point do we need to nationalize something like Facebook um, or, or maybe given that seventy percent of Facebook's activity is now outside of the United States internationalized uh, to turn it into something that better resembles a public utility uh, or to build an alternative that's more informed by and responsive to the values we behold or or, or desire in contemporary media practice which brings me to my final point um, that engaging in design itself uh, and, and here I'm actually responding to some some really helpful questions that I received at the end of uh, of my colloquium last fall. Um, To what extent do we carry forward the ideals of participation and open sharing that so appeal to the firms exploiting the social web uh, and use them to inform the building of the next generation of social media? Could we build better platforms, uh, sites better suited to user controls and free, uh, in the Lessig sense, participatory uh, peer-to-peer culture? perhaps it goes without saying that uh, this, but MIT, is an ideal place uh, to forge these connections across scholarly observation, engaged advocacy and activism, and hands-on engineering. And I'm grateful to have this little platform to remind you of all that. Thanks.
1: All right. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Fascinating. Let's uh, we'll start the discussion of this here. OK, and this is for recording for the podcast. So let's, uh, I'll pass it around.
6: All right, so I guess it's for the podcast. So I should say that I'm Flourish Klink, and I'm a second year grad student at CMS. Um, and I actually think I managed to have a question that speaks to both of you, which is really exciting. I wasn't sure I was going to be able to. Um, I'd really like to talk about the idea of an obsolescent audience because I think one thing that both of your presentations was not talking about was the audience side of media studies, which is very near and dear to my heart. Sorry to bring that in. (laughs) Um, But but what what your presentation in particular brought up to me, Wayne, is that you talk about the disappearance of iMeme, but the disappearance of that kind of great, like audience, you know, and, and collective uh, building of a community is nothing new. Uh, I've recently been doing a lot of work on fanzines and before that um, amateur press associations. And one of the big problems, of course, is that ditto dissolves. You know, uh, uh, these these very ephemeral media disappear. Um, so maybe this is to both of you. How, how do we talk about obsolescent audiences? How do we talk about um, groups that maybe today are, are meeting offline that that we don't necessarily have access to? How do we talk about the older groups that have begun to disappear and become very residual? You know, uh, uh, there's maybe one or two copies of this fanzine bumping around, and that's all we have. Um, yeah.
7: Yeah, I mean, well. Um the question of of ephemerality i mean as you know it obviously it's it's uh, it's kind of a long standing thread running through you know media practice and media studies and and the production of uh, especially sort of fan side production of things or or independent production um, i guess what i'm trying to figure out you know, and maybe this this throws me back into the sort of the new media trap is is whether the digital ephemerality is a different order of ephemerality in a way. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, sort of sh- short run, obscure, degrade, you know, deteriorating publications. That's a serious kind of of fleetingness. Um, uh, the reason that I'm so engaged by the the story of i is that it it didn't have to be so ephemeral, right? I mean, it could be like those terrible pictures of us drinking that we don't want our future employers to see right but but it's not it, i mean that's not how it went um and, and um and so i think that there are at least ways with regard to the digital realm that uh, that we might we might be able to proceed um to be more careful about preserving things uh or about you know uh, cultivating more sort of um sustainable um uh, you know uh, ecologies i guess but,
2: I guess it depends on what you want to know about your audience, right? Um, So if you actually want to know empirical things about what they thought and felt as individuals or as collective formations, then you're in a shitstorm, right? Like, Like that's basically not going to be available to you at some level as that's endlessly receding. Um, so it seems like there's uh, a couple of responses to that. Um, David Bordwell would actually say, and I, I'm not here to like promote David Bordwell, by the way. I've just been <laughs> thinking about him a little bit. That poetics is one way into that, to the degree that like, you can think about the, um, the effects that something is trying to produce as pointing to uh, some sort of psychological relationship to the audience. Um, but that's actually sort of only to run up against the problem you're run, you're describing, right? Which is to say, the audience is no longer there. What do I do? I and Correct. Um, and so I'm not sure how you solve that problem, except that my other point here would be to say, to reiterate what I said, which is to always be grasping the contemporary as always already old, right? Um, and that if media studies has a tendency towards focusing on the present, then let's embrace the historical quality of that too and document it as something that's receding, right? Um, And that may be one of the tasks that we can engage in pretty successfully. Um, I mean, the other ways are to think about whether we really care about a strictly empirical relationship to audiences um, or whether our analysis of audiences engages in some sort of speculative theorizing as well and I would think of Miriam Hansen's book on early cinema here, Babylon Babylon as an instance in which she's trying to think through an audience that's gone um, and then vis-a-vis a public sphere they potentially constituted and she really does rely upon poetics to a degree to think about the structural effects created by or potentially created by early cinema. Um, so I think it's, it depends upon your purpose with this obsolescence so as an audience I, I
8: and a more specific one for, uh, for Joel. Um, I suppose my broader question is, uh, why do we want to preserve the, these ephemeral ecologies? I mean, I can understand why you would need to, given your own personal investment, but there's this way in which, for me, what you haven't yet made clear to me is what distinguishes, say, the ecology of meme from the specific ecologies of other, the 65 other sites you show, showed. So there's a way in which I'm not, if the very nature of the medium is, in fact, digital medium in some sense has this kind of evanescence built into its very structural rhythms, mm. what's at stake in the preserve, what's the value, what's at stake in the, in the preserving, more broadly speaking, of such ephemeral moments? Especially in your last question, it's quite clear that there have always been mm. disappearance of media, difference of audience. Difference. That, that's the kind of the broad question I would just want, I mean, your thoughts, have not the sort of question I expect to answer. But you all have a more specific one, which has to do with the axial cut. I was wondering about, I wonder if you'll hear your thoughts about the way things get refunctioned. Because it seemed to me, looking at the axial cut your description of it, Uh, What has become normative in a bunch of action films, and most obviously in something like *Born Identity, is the way by which that, perhaps not necessarily on the axis itself, but a way by which the cut excising of bits and action footage Mm -hmm. functions precisely for this kind of percussive moment in the fight scenes and so on and so forth. So there's a way by which the actual cut actually gets refunctionalized and taken up again within, uh, and remobilized in certain kind of ways. So I just want you to think, I want some more... your thoughts in relation with the obsolescence and that, and refunctionalization, those are the two questions.
2: Uh, Sure, Um, uh, I I think it makes perfect sense that you went to the Bourne trilogy, which, uh, I mean, as you sort of know, I I adore that trilogy (laughs) for all sorts of reasons. Um, uh, (laughs) But I do, um, Bordwell actually, one of his contemporary examples of the Axial Cut is Die Hard. Right, so that like the axial cut actually does sort of survive into die hard, and actually I think there it's not getting refunctioned, right? It's actually just being used in the same way that it's um, it's creating percussion. Um, what I was thinking about vis a vis,
8: I suppose I would, say, I would just add that the percussion seems to have two different effects, right? In the in the the first one you, you showed, you get it actually functions stress right, as, right, right, as emphasis, the said kind of way. But if you think about the way it gets used in action films like the born, it's actually odd kind of way it the percussion has to do with really a, 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 just simply a rhythm of the scene, mm-hmm. and in fact a mode of action where you quite often can't tell, unlike otherwise who's hitting who, who's getting hit, so there's a different kind of...
2: Um, well, my, I guess my answer there is actually relatively banal, Shankar, which is to say that no device has a predetermined effect. Um, and so I think that, um, I mean, this is one of the things that Bordwell argues against, is that interpretation or in hermeneutic procedures often want to attribute a kind of meaning to devices um, that they may not actually bear. Um, And so what I think is actually useful about him is shifting us towards thinking about effects. Um, I was thinking about the the obsolescence thing. I think it's whether or not you embrace some sort of, um, whether or not a a device feels primitive or whether or not a device feels, although actually I'm getting caught up because I'm thinking, it actually does feel sort of primitive, the axial cut, right? It always, like, especially in an action movie because in those Bourne movies, there's something really primitive about the fights, right? They're very visceral and and primal. Um, uh, But again, I don't think that that carries with it the quality of sort of techno-economic aging that I'm describing, right? And I think that it depends upon um, the way in which you mobilize that particular device again. So really, I may just be saying the same thing I said earlier, which is that no effect comes predetermined with meaning. Um, And so that there's a way in which the... um, the accumulation of effects in Fantastic Mr. Fox, lateral and horizontal mov- movements, which are, which are very old-fashioned in a way, but we wouldn't notice them as much as old-fashioned without the kind of old-fashioned residuality of the medium itself. Um, so uh, I think it depends upon... Uh, here I guess I'm saying it depends upon a pattern, right? So in, in the Bourne trilogy, it's about a pattern of action in, uh, in the Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's about something like a pattern of temporality. Uh, I don't know if that answers the question right.
7: Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. And, and right, I mean, obviously, I have my own reasons which have to do with, with trying to go back and document this and, and putting it into a kind of historical context. Uh, and it's true that these kind of um, formations are, in their way, always evanescent, and maybe the process of them are, is more important than their than their residues. Um, and you know, uh, I, I guess it still remains to be seen to what extent some of these communities that I saw interacting on iMeme, uh are doing what they were doing elsewhere. Have they reconstituted? Um, will they embrace some some new platform when it when it comes along? Um, but you know if i if i just if we just think about you know this uh this playlist of um say a dozen songs created by this 17 year old kid from chicago uh, in his bedroom, intended for his peers, but actually circulating globally and inspiring, you know, kids in Belgium to make similar music, which which happened, and I, I found my way there through iMeme, uh, to find that playlist replaced by Lady Gaga ringtone advertisements. I mean, it's like it's kind of a bad metaphor for, or a good metaphor for what can happen to public culture in our contemporary age. You know, that that those spaces which which exist and provide that kind of um uh the, the the place for that that evanescent activity evanescent as it may be um uh, might uh just uh, i don't know might <laughs> might be on the verge of extinction i mean that that that's perhaps too dystopian um of me but i guess that's that's how i would answer it yeah
9: can i follow up from both questions, I guess, and put them together in a way. I've been thinking about temporality and being a little more even um, historical or aware, self-conscious about temporality's role in all this as you're talking. Um, So I also have two questions. It seems everybody has two questions. Uh, One way, I'm thinking about it is to take seriously your point about taking the residual forms. I think about theater, which has always had this issue of how do you tell the performance history. Um, you always were relying on a mix of authoritative critical voices and often unselfconsciously just replicating a few people's perspectives. And then we got more interesting and used ephemera and other kinds of documentation to enlarge that. and. Address the question of audience that I think is such a good one to, to put in the picture. Um, when you're talking about effects, then it's not just formal analysis that reveals a different effect; it's also different audiences. Which brings me back to the question of what I see when you show me Fantastic Extra Fox versus what maybe some of the CMS students see. I see Gumby and Pokey. Even I mean and. That dates me and about five other people in the room who remember Gumby and Pokey. I also see Nick Park, right, who seems the obvious elephant in the room in terms of having made this very important and very cool outside of the American domain um, and then coming to America, bringing it to America through Wallace and Gromit. Um, And so, uh, I'm bringing different contexts in here. We're never going to be able to pin all that down, even if you could freeze your moment, right? Even if you could have that, it would be like me having all of Shakespeare's audience reports, but it's not gonna help me understand it in my temporality. Um, in any kind of authentic way, which is the problem almost always of putting on Shakespeare performances now when people say they want to do it the way it used to be done and you have to say you can't ever do it the way it was done. So the moment is gone. And so what do we do once we realize it really is gone and we can't get it back? How do we develop a new aesthetics, which seems to be haunting both these talks that takes seriously the multiple dimensions of what's been laid out now, including democracy?
2: So the question is, how do we develop a new aesthetics?
9: Or is that one way? I mean, clearly one issue is, how do we theorize time? Right, I mean, how do we... One issue would be the temporality issue, is how do we embrace, rather than try to bemoan or lament, hmm. this much more radical sense of temporal loss and change? Um, and the other is, does that, in fact, call us back to this issue of reading that Bordwell's trying to bracket... Um, as inevitable when the effect can't just be uh, formally contained and you want to do more than just say politically we believe in democracy, how do you put those things together?
2: I'll let you go first. (laughs)
9: Boy, uh, I'm not exactly sure how to
7: approach that. I was going to have a a, a glib answer, which is to say that our our contemporary aesthetics obviously need to be all about remixing Lady Gaga ringtones. Uh, (laughs) But I don't think that's going to be adequate or or satisfactory. Um,
0: Yeah.
7: um, Well unfair,
2: (laughs) because uh, at least I'm not an aesthetic producer, right? But uh, one of my problems with the way in which uh, contemporary theory has oriented itself around aesthetics and temporality is that it tends to um, valorize a particularly old version of aesthetic practice. So that old version is something like the robust 19th century historical novel as that which expresses historicity. Um, And so I actually think that Um, As much as I've sort of pitched um, uh, Anderson's temporal aesthetic against um, Cameron, I think we also have to register that there is a temporal aesthetic in Cameron as well, that audiences all over the place are registering. They may be registering it wrongly, that it's this utter revolution in cinema. I I don't know when we're going to be able to spend as much money as you spent on on Avatar regularly, but I actually think some of the temporal aesthetics you... um, are wanting exist and that we actually have to start um, shifting the language that we use to talk about them, at least in the academy, in order to recognize some of the far more temporal textures that occur than Jameson's critique of pastiche allowed us to see, right? It's not just emptiness, it's that what Jameson wants is no longer what this generation does. So we experience temporality aesthetically differently daily,
10: Oh, great. Hi, um, I'm Sheila, and I'm a second-year grad student at CMS. Um, Hearing you talk about the residual, I'm immediately reminded of Raymond Williams' um, concept of of dominant cultural systems um, and the idea that the residual and emergent um, exist at the same time as the dominant um, and that they um all sort of inform each other um and i'm wondering if looking at it through that lens that you know shed light sheds any light on these issues or um gives us another way um to think about it beyond you know the actual physical artifacts um but looking more at you know how this the systems develop
2: uh yeah i mean i'm a uh I'm a Marxist, so <laughs> archaic, residual, um, dominant, and emergent are perfectly wonderful to me. Um, uh, but I actually think raising it is important because it goes to a little bit of Shankar's question about Wayne, which is to say that it's not necessary that we necessarily archive and preserve every single residual audience that vanishes. Like, I mean, who, part of I take the force of Shankar's question to be is, like, who cares and who has time? but um but I do think that one of the things that's important in at least starting to think about archiving some of it, right is to say that we're recognizing emergent and residual simultaneously happening within the social matrix, right And so by doing that, we enable our ability later on to think about that tempor- that cotemporality um, and And I think that's the reason to do it in CMS now, right. Um, uh, as for, I mean, I'm particularly interested in the critical uses of obsolescence and I, I wasn't really spinning that here. Um, uh, I'm really interested in how the residual offers up, you know, I mean, I think Williams talks about it as the rejected, the devalued, like alternatives that have been rejected. Right. Um, and not just like, I'm not interested in them in just as sites of nostalgia, um, but as actual alternatives that have been rejected. Um, yeah so I think that the Williams model is really important to this.
7: Yeah if I might just just add very quickly I mean what 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 I and another way that I feel that loss of I mean was that at least with regard to the juke scene what you did see was this 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 amazing uh, irrepressible youth culture to come back to a phrase that uh, William threw out at the end of my talk last time uh, that was it was a kind of emergent approach to to a kind of newly produced shared culture um, and something that could serve as inspiration to local peers in chicago or or far flung uh, listeners' audiences in uh you know europe or, or what have you um but now is gone you know and and there there, there really isn 't a, a trace of it at least in this in this one place um and and so I think you know for those who uh, you know for those who want to to see that as a seed of another possible future for you know, so socially networked media—that um, uh, that future sort of uh, gets a little a little uh, dimmer um, with its loss.
3: Yeah. All
7: right, next question, yeah,
3: Marty. Marty Marks, uh, music, and I—I uh, I really fascinated by this because I don't see any problems here. I only see lots of questions that are coming up. Um, if, if the, I think you guys are sort of in a way the future of media studies and um, what you're showing is the perpetual problem of how to deal with the past when we're already living in something that's obsolete, the present, as you nicely said, Jeff. It's gone before it, we even can conceptualize it. But I would like to make a couple of specific uh, points to each, er, I have a question kind of to each of you about the axial cut. Um, first of all, I don't think anybody here is anti-Boardwell. I mean, we all. I love Boardwell. We teach Boardwell all the time in our classes. So I'm not sure if I was understanding you as suggesting that Boardwell is somebody we don't do enough with or not. But even the, the question of the axial cut got rather problematic for me the way you were presenting it because immediately in my head I thought, well, um, Hitchcock, who admittedly grew up in the silent film period, when axial cuts were part of, I'm sure he saw examples like the one you cited. But take the birds, for example, that shocking moment when Suzanne Plachette, uh, or when Jessica Tandy goes into the house of her neighbor and um, finds that he has been killed by an attack of the birds. And Hitchcock uses axial cuts for the most devastating shock effect so that you finally get the close up of her eyes that have been pecked out. And um, it's a it's a d- brilliant use of an interruptive kind of technique that you're not expecting. It's totally, it is percussive. That's a brilliant word for a very good word for it. But um, why do we have to suddenly get all mixed up about, well, this is an obsolete technique? It wasn't obsolete to Hitchcock. It was simply one of the arsenal of techniques you have as a master creator in a particular medium that you draw upon when you need it. Just as Giuseppe Verdi, when he wrote Falstaff in his 80s, summarized the whole history of Italian opera with many witty puns, allusions, references that one critic brilliantly called the old man's toys. So that he was simply the master who knew all the arsenal, and he chose to use some techniques that were obsolete by contemporary moment standards and others that were well-known, and he reconfigured all of them for new purposes. Uh, well, you, is that the question? It's not a question, obviously. It's, okay. a, it's a reply. Uh, because, uh,
2: well, I mean, my formal account, I'm, I'm really just stealing from Boardwell. So uh, he cites the birds, but he's actually pretty insistent that uh, as a as a norm, as something that appeared frequently, it vanishes, and that the reason it re-enters contemporary cinema to some degree is through Bordwell, through The Birds. Um, But I think the master model is actually the model that does not interest Bordwell. Like, he's not really interested... I mean, obviously, he talks about canonical texts, but in his concern with generating norms, um, I think he would actually... Like, it wouldn't just be... There would be a historical model for understanding that, yes, uh, Hitchcock was alive during the silent period, but that it, it was, to some degree, a technique that had sort of fallen off the radar of the institution of filmmaking. You, so I'm I not sure why s- it's in, like, I'm a little unclear on just a second the charge a second. of your question
3: well, or critique. Well, my question isn't that. I mean, I'm not saying that it has to be used by a master. I'm just saying, I don't understand. First of all, I'm not aware of this as being an everyday technique in cutting in the 20s even then I mean I think the Russian montage artists were themselves yeah. using a technique that was considered unusual at the time um, for special effects I I can think of lots of instances of dissolves of fades in and out that get some of the same process of forward or backward motion but I'm not I'm I'm just uh, so I just don't quite get the point about the axial cut that you were that you were representing Boardwells having said so obviously I have to go look back at and well.
2: Yeah, I'm really, I mean, I'm actually not claiming authority over the history of the Axial Cut. I'm going to defer to Boardwell. Um, but I do think that, uh, that the point still holds that there are things that vanish from normative procedure um, that have a temporal charge when they reemerge sometimes, and other times they don't. So it's as banal as that. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Um, Hi, I'm Nick Siever, and I'm a CMS grad student also. And as someone who studies obsolete or residual media in comparative media studies, the player piano, um, I have a question for Joel, or sort of a, I don't know, question critique. Um, You mentioned that it would be interesting to study new media as what you said, always already old, which seems to refer to the Lisa Gittleman book about old media, always already new. Um, And there's sort of, I guess, in those two phrases, two different ways of approaching these sort of historically disparate media objects. One is to look at new things and imagine them as they sort of, as if, as we think about things that are old, and the other is to look at old things and think, oh wow, those were new at some time. Um, And it appears that you are suggesting, I guess, the the former of those. Um, But I think that, well, so my, my critique is basically Fantastic Mr. Fox is not old. Correct. And so, in a sense, that's, it is new media that is doing something with the old, but, um, but it's not studying like, old media per se. So, I don't know if you're learning anything about old media comparatively that you, from looking at new media that are thinking about what old things are like. So, what's the advantage of doing that over, say, looking at an actually old and obsolete medium?
2: Um, I'm really just offering... Well, I mean, part of my project is to say that the contemporary actually is historical in an uneven way. Um, And this, I mean, this may have been part of Marty's point, like, why is that a surprise? Um, I actually do think it's a surprise in certain circles. Um, And I do think it's a surprise to a lot of students, especially undergraduates, to imagine the contemporary as itself some sort of historical object. Um, and I guess if I were to have done the full-blown research project or the, the article this will eventually become around Fantastic Mr. Fox, um, it actually would have to open up an older history um, comparatively, which is to say what Diana was talking about, in addition to things like King Kong, right, um, which is when stop-action animation was always already new, right? So... Um, I guess I'm after something a little more flexible than what you're describing, which is not to say that the study of residual media only needs to focus on things that no longer are common, but that residual media can reorganize our relationship to the contemporary, um, not to the new. Like, I'm actually saying, stop talking about new media. (laughs) Like, the, the, the term, get rid of it, for a while. Just like at one point we should have stopped talking about Benjamin's artwork essay. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's, an, it's it, my point is enough is enough. Let's <laughs> let's reformulate the conceptual language and see what it
4: does. I um, agree with you 100% about that <laughs> essay. Up here, there
1: we go. Did you want one?
6: Yeah, you yeah, have no, one, yeah, one, one right? I'll try to remember
9: it. Remember
10: um, also for Joel, sorry. You're
6: not getting any breaks, but, um, <laughs> Um, Okay, what was I gonna say? I'm wondering if if going further with this, if you're gonna look, so speaking of comparative media studies and not just looking at different films, Uh you know, around the same period, um, and the new and old, but also across media, and situating fantastic Mr. Fox in what I can't help but just call hipster culture, Uh and, and looking at this whole, the whole retro trend, and that aesthetic, and the rise of urban crafters, and, you know, thrifter culture, and all that stuff, do you think that can add anything to what you're, what you're looking at with the, with the film and sort of how it's not him working in that vacuum or him and Michelle Gondry and working within film that really it's across media and across a, a whole urban youth culture, your maybe twenties culture, that is kind of part of that whole cultural shift. Uh, of, yeah, of I actually, I bathroom. actually
2: love that. Um, I thought of, the, I mean, the hipster thing is utterly clear and deeply ironic given Meryl Streep and George Clooney's heavy presence in this film, right? Because um, they're so far beyond the age of what we call hipster. Um, uh, and yet that's totally the, the vibe of George Clooney right now. But um, I think that's true, actually. Um, I, I don't have a response beyond, like, thank you. Um, because I actually think re- situating um, Fantastic Mr. Fox within the retro norms of hipster culture... Um, is another set of norms that would really matter to this. Um and I hadn't thought about that. And I think that actually brings a kind of specificity to it. Um that might go back to the question earlier about audience too, right? Like um that, there is a certain subcultural audience potentially being articulated that itself can that conceptualizes itself as temporally out of step, right?
7: Although it, just to jump in, I mean, doesn't doesn't this raise the, the specter of Jameson's blank parody again? And sure. you know, yeah.
0: <laughs> but, but let's let's just stop talking about that <laughs> also <laughs> <Holy> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, specters of Jameson um, <laughs>
4: uh,
2: yeah, I mean, uh, of course, blank parody um, uh, if you're interested in this question there's actually a really good article by Christian Thorne called The Revolutionary Energy of the Outmoded from October, um, I forget what number it is 100 or 101 uh, that talks about retroculture and talks about different iterations of retroculture, like regional hipster, um, hip-hop recycling, um, and actually tries to sort of get around Jameson's um, model for talking about this. Um, so if you're more interested in that, I don't know if you are, but that, that's a good direction to go. Um, yeah, I mean, Jameson's right and Jameson's wrong. Like, I want him to stop bemoaning. Like, he, he, got, he got the condition right, changed model of historical change, but this, the, the symptomatic expression that everything we watch and everything we read is this reduced temporal experience, it's a nice, easy model, but I think it's wrong, so.
1: Um, I, I guess, okay, I have a question, we have time, and, and uh, let's go to William first then, <laughs> please. I can hold my question. <laughs>
5: So yeah, with Mr. Fox, I mean, Sheila's point is really well taken about the simultaneity of all of these modes, because the sound work is digital, the color correction is completely digital, the post-production was digital. So yes, there are artifacts that harken back to another era. What's interesting about that harkening back process is what's also interesting about history. It says a lot, it says as much about our present, about our concerns, what we choose, what we see from the past reveals a lot about our present. Mm -hmm. And... The slippage that occurs and uh, it occurs when we start to flatten these things stylistically. So the the um, the editing trope you looked at meant something. I mean, in the Soviet Union in the twenties, meant something highly specific, right. right? This is a period when constructivism reigns, when there's a highly articulated discourse about these cuts being ruptures in the viewing process. They get reworked by Hollywood as the great aggregator of all technique and puts it to another end. It becomes action. It becomes shock. It becomes a kind of effect. But in the Soviet Union in the 20s, this is a, has a highly specific set of meanings. If you look at the, sh- the wobbly camera of the 50s and with the emergence of direct cinema and cinema verite, it means something quite specific that today, when audiences see it in advertisements, means someone's present or something vague. It means something quite different. So there might be artifactual or stylistic affinities but their historic their historical specificities are really quite different, and what that speaks to is is the thing that Hillary was just mentioning. This broader it seems to me this broader set of cultural practices that these are not just forms plucked out of time and or or artifacts or or, or even media. Uh, the the uh, Pixar vision, right? This little toy camera sold in the in the '60s that's become the the lifeblood of a little niche within the avant-garde. Something totally. It's not a toy anymore. It means something quite different. So all to say one really does have to look outside of the of the text and certainly even outside of the medium to locate and understand the fabric of meanings that these things acquire that strikes me as really essential and that's the great danger that that Wayne's paper talks to i mean that absence is a problem and things like the internet archive in some ways are a feeble attempt to address it. The UN, UNESCO, is really busy trying to set some standards to fix this. But for being the information age, we're really about to be the dark age in terms of exactly that broader network of meanings, broader networks of practices that help us to locate and give meaning to any kind of practice, whether whether it's a recovered practice from the past or something that's new. And by the way, the thing with that cutting practice is it's very much about a new medium it's about a medium when it's right. when it 's first introduced that's you know the first e- evidence of that i 've seen is maybe nineteen six or nineteen seven we 're talking about a medium that's ten years old right. so in fact, the new media discourse is is not an irrelevant one to that practice uh,
2: I agree with everything you said <laughs> <laughs> um, no i do uh, i um these were heuristics today, right? So, um, uh, and I, I don't care about the axial cut. I mean, I do care about, <laughs> 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 um, I, I really don't, like, but I do care about historical specificity. Um, and, and I do think that there's a way in which the term new media quickly glides into a, a, a starting point that's also an end point at this point, right? Like we say it and we think we know what it means. And so that's all I really want. Is to, I'm not saying it's irrelevant, but I wanna know what its relevance is. Um, and, and I think it frequently gets invoked a little too quickly and a little too easily. Um, so so yeah, the axial cut was once a new medium. What do I know now, right? I mean, that's really my question there. Um, I mean, I agree with you, uh, but I'm just curious about how we would articulate um, whether or not new media is doing anything for us there. Um, and I agree that like the, um, I find the the kind of hipster context a totally massively enriching one to think about in terms of how to do this. Um, uh, well,
5: what you know about it being a new
4: medium? is precisely new.
5: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry, it's precisely <laughs> the elision of meaning, right? This thing is introduced. A medium is taking form. There's not a canonical set of of, of right. techniques yet. It's quite right, wide ranging. In that early stage, and we see this with almost all media practices, a lot of things are tried and those things have pretty specific meanings or pretty specific right. intents in any, in any event. And As a medium ages, it starts to become a little bit reified, it becomes institutionalized, practices become standardized, there becomes a, a common, a lingua franca within that, uh, so the classic Hollywood. Uh, Cinema right, right. would be a great example of what happens when it starts to age. So that's why newness in this case actually gives gives these strategies gave an affordance for these techniques to emerge to be used in particular ways before they get repurposed and beaten into a kind of vernacular.
2: Right. I guess I'm just interested in the opposite, William, which is like when they take upon the quality of aging, like not where they're invisible, but where they feel.
5: But this doesn't feel. I don't think it. Correct. What I see today, but and that's feel that's what I
2: was actually saying earlier is that I actually don't think the axial cut seems old. I think the old-fashioned Mr. Fox feels old. Like whether. Uh-huh. whether I think the is being merged,
8: I don't think new means the same thing both your comments. Uh-huh. There's, there's a fact of something being new which in that sense new media is new but I think what's also at stake in your talk is the extent to which new media functions in fact as explanatory paradigm which is yeah. and therefore it seems to be two levels of questions which are being merged in, 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 in the kind of the exchange that, that, at the moment and I would like those to be Distinguished a little more in the in, in, in as, as well. I mean, if you see the distinction. Yeah, making, yeah, it's no. saying, everything that's first introduced is new. It has a process of aging, as William says, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what you're pointing to is also the way by which the very notion of new media becomes, in its own sense, some kind of explanatory paradigm. It's not. This may have been true back then I, in in the, in the early cinema, but actually my own sense of it is that it did, it wasn't the same kind of explanation in the, uh, uh, at, at that moment, and certainly wasn't in other kinds of uh, kinds of media. So that's the,
9: or, or the other dimension I was hearing was more that the way new media now is being used is almost to forestall the, the awareness of its historicity in that it was it is like film back in the first decade that it's whole new thing we have to understand it as a, in a whole new way so we lose the historicity or the, the lessons of history that's what I was hearing two different ways of of using new.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think they're right, William. I agree with you that there's historical specificity, right? And that um, the fact of being new meant something at one point. um, And that, I mean, and again, I'm relying on Bordwell here. In Bordwell's account, like, the axial cut travels to the Soviet Union, not the reverse direction, and then it gets reintroduced later on. Repurposed, to go back to the language before. Um, And sometimes, I guess what I'm saying is that that repurposing takes upon... um, sometimes that repurposing tries to preserve the quality of it being old like or sometimes that repurposing is not repurposing sometimes that um the reintroduction of a reintroduction of a, of an effect is about actually resurrecting the old principle um or the oldness of it um and so i guess that's what i'm i'm just really trying to get at some of these temporal complexities and so i would uh, I don't know if I'm just being defensive at this point, actually, because so <laughs> you're. So I'm gonna shut up.
1: We have one more question. Well,
0: actually, actually, I had two questions, two but questions. <laughs> but I'm going to actually I'm gonna I'm gonna set them both aside though, and just I'm make, your two I'm, just to two make I'm just gonna make I'm just gonna make one comment uh, instead because I wanted to amplify uh, and and commend uh, uh, something that uh, that Wayne uh, said in conclusion. Uh, regarding our ability to create our own sorts of uh... platforms and systems um, this wasn't something we picked up on in the discussion so far it's not something we think about but our ability to approach media critically historically um, to develop new theories understand things about media and transition can be brought into this activist mode and you know if it's something like uh, facebook or google um, you know those systems along with yahoo all started at uh... You know institutions like this one; um, and they can, in fact, be created um, in a way that um, you know, sort of the entrepreneurial mode, the marketplace um, uh, might not be interested in. But you know, which uh, we, as being involved with communication and being involved with um, uh, the values that we have as uh, as academics and access to knowledge and access to the past and trying to understand our world, you know, can can bring forth. So. Um, I, think that, I think that's a really important point, that um, we talk about the applied humanities and think about the possibilities that we have at MIT to work as people engage with and understanding media. Um, doing that sort of work, we shouldn't be half-joking about it. It is possible to, uh, to put together systems like this um, to express the values that we and people in our community want. So um, let's do it.
1: <laughs> Rock on, Righteous Brother. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, can I? I'll take one short. Well, one last question, and, and then is there more? And then more questions here? I don't want to cut off anybody else. Uh, I just wanted a, a quick comment, perhaps, from each of you on this question of fashion. I was interested in fashion and fashionable and refashioning. And because what struck me by the sort of your two talks is that, uh, you know, the digital, uh, I feel that there's this idea that we can just save it all, right? You just see somebody was just bragging to me about their five terabyte disk they just got for a hundred bucks and, and how you just hold everything. You have a million films and photos and everything. And so on the one hand, that's what endures. And yet we see that that's, in fact, the easiest thing to replace with a Lady Gaga ringtone ad uh, at one level, that its its sustainability and its savability uh, is actually more complex and this thing that we thought was going to be gone, right, stop-motion, and I see it in Japanese animation too, where it's a hand-drawn style that's going out of favor, it takes a lot of work, it doesn't make any money, uh, and yet it endures, uh, and, and so I, I I was just curious, you know, if there's something we can say about how that works, you know, why why is it that there's a kind of and we think of sustainability, uh, spreadability, but is there a kind of an endurability uh, that comes with certain kinds of media? And if so, you know, I, my sense is, you know, where does that come from, right? And, and so there's the technology side, uh, which makes it easier to put a Gaga ad in a website than uh, Wes Anderson's film, I suppose. Uh, but then it also, it seems to me, it comes back to William's question, that it has to do with the things around it, right? And maybe Marty's too, that the meanings that are attached to it. So I was curious about what lasts and what what doesn't last in, in, in the comparison between your two talks. Okay. Is that too much
7: maybe? Well, um, no there's a, there's a lot of stuff there. I I mean I I keep reversing my own thinking on this, you know, initially thinking of the internet as a more ephemeral place as and the digital as being a somewhat um, less durable realm and then sort of um, in part because of all the the, the sort of public uh, anxiety about uh, how the things we do or say will follow us later, um, changing my ideas about that uh, until, you know, more recently, seeing seeing things like the the, the, the quick demise uh, of, of meme. it seems to me that uh, I mean, a lot of the stuff that was on IMEme, is on people's drives somewhere, is on people's disks and, and and so forth, that, you know, these these discrete texts and, and things are more easily saved and copied and in fact become so promiscuous whether on the net or on local drives that they're they they can come back like stop motion film at some point you know and and I do hope that somewhere you know some some um, uh, some some fringe group found it quite fashionable to mirror iMeme, and one day I will find that again uh, on the internet but <laughs> I'm not going to hold out too much hope it's it's the other stuff uh, the the connections in fact the stuff that's most valuable to these Web 2.0 companies who then can sell that metadata to the advertisers to provide targeted ads that's the stuff that that we don't have as much access to that's not very easy to document that uh, that I think we actually need to do some pretty creative thinking about how to 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 map these things um uh, and to to have them in in some sort of form uh that that will um endure
8: but
7: uh, so I get to avoid
2: this question um uh the question is, uh, what endures and why? Um, I mean, <laughs> uh, the, the only thing I'll say quickly is that one person once told me that my project was actually about how culture comes into existence. That basically, once something is obsolete, that's when it sort of starts to enter. Like that's when it becomes a kind of cultural raw material, um, or when we start to get culture. Um, I'm not sure what they meant exactly, um, but it it sounded weirdly right. At times, Um, maybe I was going on the job market or something. (laughs)
6: Uh, Yeah, this question is for Wayne. Um, I'm Christina. I'm from the Center for Future Civic Media, and I'm a major IME mourner. But I guess my question is uh, to quote our previous president: um, Is the children learning? Like, are are we? Is there any sense of progress? I, I yeah. you know, when, when I mean died, I didn't see a sort of institutional outrage. I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I, I talked with other people who were also upset about it, but I didn't see it on the music blogs. I didn't see it. Hmm. It, it wasn't like a big thing that happened. And were these communities upset, I guess, were there sort of recovery or reconstruction efforts and, and yeah. how do people see this in terms of going forward?
7: That's a great question, and and I want to thank you too because it was your question at the end of my colloquium about these platforms themselves that have sent me on this this sort of direction, um, and and it also comes back to Shankar's question too, is, which is to say, why should we care? You know, okay, so that's done with. You know, the kids are still making music um, and and whatever else. Uh, th- it's true there were there were sort of limited. I mean, there was definitely a sort of twitter hashtag morning of iMeme and a lot of criticism of uh of of the way myspace handled it and I've seen you know murmurs here and there of people saying sort of you know trying to trying to actually wrap their heads around what part of contemporary music culture was lost with that for me it it, it is the children learning uh, sort of directs us to the the um the question of uh you know well I, I, do we and, 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 and do the children do our students do, uh, do us uh, do, do we as activists and practitioners ourselves do we approach this this kind of predicament uh, you know tactically or strategically I mean I think a lot of kids are, are sort of uh, proceeding more tactically and they're just they're jumping to the next thing and, and not necessarily thinking too much about the implications of that. Oh there's another fashionable social networking site where I can upload my music or, or find somebody else's um, uh, Great, uh, and and you know maybe that's what's happening with you know uh, former floggers in Argentina that now they're on Facebook, and and that's um, sort of uh, engendering a different mode of sharing, and one that um, probably is producing all kinds of wonderful things, but but maybe is also um, not not producing. The, the same interesting and wonderful thing that Fotolog was producing in Argentina. Um, and so, I'd, I i mean, w- my hope, and, and although I don't know where the children is going to learn this, uh, is is that, um, you know, that at, at, at some point there will be a, an I'mimacalypse that uh, that actually gets people to think a little there's bit more been, about... Well Geocities. well, GeoCities, okay. Well, With the Japan community, at least, there was a, there's been a major project. Archiving project... Major. Believe me, I almost, I, I, I was so going to mention it. No, 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 thank you. No, I almost mentioned GeoCities because it's a great example of that. Of course, in the case of GeoCities, it was Yahoo, right, who shut it down ultimately. I think they had bought it, and then they were like, what, why are we holding on to this? They actually gave people warning. <laughs> you know. Okay, yeah, no, and so, no, I'm not denying that there are projects like this, although GeoCities is a particularly misleading one in a way because it really rallied rallied the nerds you know in a way you know i mean i i say that affectionately but it was people who said you know oh this is such a big part of our internet geek culture and i want those under construction gifts and i want you know i don't want those things to just disappear into the ether and so there was a concerted effort there i'm feeling like 17 year old chicago kids are probably not just just not thinking at that at at, at, you know just not thinking about it at that at that level in a way. And and I don't know exactly how to get that critical consciousness, media consciousness out there. Um, you know, I, I mean my you know, my my worry is that as more and more of this activity, you know, floats onto sort of closed ish platforms like Facebook, that's it's just another form of, of cultural enclosure and 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 a kind of amnesia that sets in and and uh, you know we, we're just reduced to these tactics and you know and that's that. But, um, you know, I don't know. I guess for me, I always come back as a teacher to, to, to pedagogy, but also to a kind of engaged, um, you know, uh, activism that, that, that also takes the form of, of building things uh, as well as sharing some of this, this knowledge. So thank you.
1: Great. All right. Well, thank you to all the questions and all the discussion. Very wonderful. And thank you to our panelists. A great kickoff to the season. And there will be a, there is a reception afterwards. Where?